will once again feast on His glorious Word. Lord, we're thankful that though no unrighteous person will inherit the kingdom of God, no idolater, no fornicator, no homosexual, no drunkard, no reviler, no thief, no swindler will inherit Your kingdom. Yet such were some of us, but we're not those things anymore. We've been cleansed. We've been sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're not what we once were. We have a new position, a new identity in Christ. You have clothed us with His righteousness. You have washed away all of our sins, and for that we're grateful. And now, Lord, having been bought with a price, no longer being our own, but being the slaves of Christ, He being our Lord, our Master, now we must glorify God in our body. Help us now, Lord, as the people of God, to give ourselves and present our bodies as living sacrifices to You, and to yield the whole of our lives without reservation to You, that we might be faithful servants of the One who gave Himself for us. That's our hope and our prayer. And our prayer for the world as they continue to indulge in their sin. Our prayer for many churches that even condone such wicked actions. Churches standing for gay pride and LGBTQ and all of these ridiculously wicked things. Or we pray that You would grant repentance to these Churches, they're not even churches at all, in fact. A church that abandons the truth is no church. We pray You would grant these people repentance. We pray You would open their eyes. Lord, we were once foolish and disobedient ourselves, enslaved to various lusts, but You had mercy on us, and now we pray that You would have mercy on them. Draw them into the kingdom. And help us now as the church to arise, to put our armor on, to go into the world hearing the call of Christ our Captain, and seeking in love to speak the truth that the captives may be set free, that the bond, those in bondage may be released, that Your kingdom would be open wide to those whom You would save for Yourself and for Your glory. Use us to go into the world exposing the unfruitful deeds of darkness, speaking the truth in love, making righteous judgments that You might use us for Your glory. And now, Father, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for the Lord's Day. We thank You for this glimpse, this foretaste of heaven. As we worship You now through hearing Your Word and responding in faith and worship and obedience, we pray for help. We pray that Your Word would make wise the simple. We pray that Your Spirit would help us to understand these truths and that You would apply them to our lives for the magnification of Your name. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me yet again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And as we continue to work our way through this little letter, the second chapter of John's little letter, we come to verses 15 through 17 this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I've told you several times that John wrote this letter as a series of tests by which we can measure the validity of our faith or the lack thereof. A series of tests by which you can distinguish between true Christianity and false Christianity. And that's so important for us today, isn't it? So many false versions of Christianity, even false versions of Christianity that go under the banner of evangelicalism and yet do not pass the test of 1 John, need to be exposed. We need to be able to distinguish between that and biblical Christianity. And personally, we need to be able to distinguish between a true Christian and a false Christian. So it's written to provide assurance. 1 John is a book of assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. And there are three tests that John presents over and over again, that if you fail, you ought to be afraid, but if you pass, you ought to have confidence and assurance. Those tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. And as you're going to see as we continue to work our way through 1 John, the, the moral test and the social test are inextricably linked together. They can't be separated. You see, obedience flows from love, and disobedience flows from a lack of love. Love always responds in obedience. That's what love looks like in action. It obeys the Word of God. In fact, all of the tests are linked. True belief in the true Christ produces love for God in our neighbor, and that produces obedience to God's commandments. Obedience to God's commandments. But love and obedience are linked. Last week, we looked at a passage that was sandwiched 
in between two passages that have the same theme. Have the same theme. Last week we looked at verses 12 to 14, and there John kind of let up a little bit. He's been going at it, black and white. You're either this or that, Christian or non-Christian. Obedience or you're not, a, you're not saved. You either love your brother, you're in the darkness. You believe the truth about Christ, or you're an antichrist. John's been going at it. And he hasn't seemed to let up very often. But last week he did let up, and we're thankful for that, aren't we? We need a break sometimes. We need some encouragement. So John let up, and he gave some encouragement and reassurance to his readers. He reminded them of four things that are true for all Christians, regardless of their level of spiritual maturity. All true Christians are forgiven, All true Christians know God. All true Christians have overcome. And all true Christians need Scripture. But that, as I said, was sandwiched in between two other passages that speak of the theme of love. The theme of love. Two weeks ago, in verses 7 to 11, we saw the test of love, part 1, the love that God requires. And now this morning, in verses 15 through 17, we see the test of love, part 2, the love that God prohibits. The love that God prohibits. With that said, let me read these three verses to you. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. As Christians, we understand that love is a central theme in biblical Christianity. Back in verse 7, John just said that the command to love is an old commandment, one we've had from the very beginning. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Leviticus Chapter 18, where, 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 Leviticus chapter 19, where we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's an old commandment. That's a commandment of antiquity. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says that God is love. God is love. We know that God is love. We know that God loves sinners. We know that God commands us to love. However, unlike what many evangelicals may think today, God is not only a God of love. God not only loves, God also hates. God hates. In Psalm 5.5 we read this, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. I didn't make that up. Right? Christians didn't make this up. This is what the Word of God said. I told you before, Gandhi said, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's what God does. That's what Gandhi said. The Bible says God hates the worker of iniquity. Are you going to believe a heretic or are you going to believe God? This is what God says. God hates sinners. So we have to note that God doesn't just hate sin, He hates the sinner. It's not the sin that He casts into hell. He consigns the sinner to hell. God hates the sinner. That is to say, He sets His wrath against him in judgment. God's wrath is set against sinners. Solomon also highlighted this perfect hatred of God. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, we read this from Solomon. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God is a God of hate. He hates lying. He hates pride. He hates gossip. He hates murder. And notice, He doesn't just hate lying. He hates the liar, the text says. He hates the false witness who utters lies. God hates sin, and God hates sinners. If God is love, God must hate If God is love, God must hate. If I love that which is good, I hate that which is evil. If I love marriage, I hate divorce. If I love children, I hate abortion. If I love life, I hate death. And if I love God, I hate sin. God must 
hate. God hates anything that is opposed to His will, His law, His purposes, His character, and His glory. He hates anything that is opposed to Him. The reality then is that God is a God of hate. We're not talking about the false God that many concoct for themselves in their own minds in our culture. That's not the God of the Bible. Often you'll hear things like this from evangelical Christians in our culture. My God would never send anyone to hell. You know how you respond when they say that? Tell them you're right. Because your God doesn't exist. If you worship a God that would send no one to hell, if you worship a God who is not going to bring rapists and murderers and terrorists to justice, then the God you worship is not the God of the Bible. It's a false God that you've made up in your imagination. The God of the Bible is a God of hate. He's a God of perfect hate. Perfect hate. And not only does God hate, but get this, He also commands His people to hate. God commands us to hate. In Psalm 97, verse 10, we read this, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Those who love God are called to hate evil. In Psalm 119, verse 104, we read, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I understand the truth from the Word of God, therefore I hate error. I hate deception. I hate false religion. I hate lies. I hate that which is opposed to the truth of God. I love righteousness, therefore I hate lawlessness. I love God's truth, therefore I hate error. It's not that I just don't like Mormonism. I hate Mormonism. It's not that I just don't like Roman Catholicism. I hate Roman Catholicism. It's not that I just don't like the Watchtower Society's doctrines. I hate them. I abhor them because they dishonor God. And if I love God, I hate that which opposes Him. So though it is certainly true that God is a God of love, and that there is a love that God commands, yet there is also a love that God hates. Love that God hates. There's a love that God requires, and there's a love that God prohibits. A love that God prohibits. What is the love that God hates? What kind of love does God prohibit? The answer is the love of the world. The love of the world. The word world is used six times in these verses. The word love three times. This passage is about God's hatred for the love of the world. God prohibits love for the world. And in these three verses, John provides both the requirement to not love the world as well as the reasons to not love the world. The requirement and the reasons. So first, let's consider the requirement to not love the world. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. We're commanded to not love the world. Now, what is the world? What is the world? That might sound strange to you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do not love the world. It's the word cosmos. Cosmos. And it refers to an ordered system. Ordered system. That's why we call the universe the cosmos, because that's what it is. It's an ordered system. So it refers to an ordered system. And obviously the word doesn't always have the same meaning in Scripture. Though Some might think that. Uh, some people fall into problems when they think that the word cosmos refers to every person in the world. Right? You hear that? God so loved the world. Uh, that means God loved every individual the same. Well, then you get here and you realize, well, the word world can't always mean every person because it doesn't hear. What's John saying? We know from John 3.16 that God loves the cosmos. So much so that He gave His only Son so that all those believing in Him would not perish but have eternal life. We know from chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole cosmos. The whole world. But surely, John's not telling us here to hate the world for which Christ died. The word cosmos obviously can refer to the universe itself. God created the universe. He created the cosmos. Surely we're not called to hate the universe that God has made. The universe that in Genesis 1.31 He Himself declares was very good. And even in its fallen state, it still declares the glory of God. So surely we're not to hate people. Surely we're not to hate the believers, the elect, those for whom Christ died. We're not to hate God's creation, God's universe. So what is it that we're called to hate? What is it we're called to hate? We're called to hate the evil world system of which Satan is the God of. 
That's what the world is here. It's the evil system that is dominated personally by Satan, morally by sin, intellectually by falsehood, and metaphorically by darkness. We're called to hate the evil system ruled by Satan. According to 1 John 5.19, the whole cosmos lies in the power of the evil one. John 12.31 calls Satan the ruler of the cosmos. Ruler of the cosmos. That's what John's telling us not to love. We are to not love, we are to hate, we are to reject the evil system ruled by the devil and everything that that entails. We get a further definition of this world in verse 16 where John speaks of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's the world we're called to reject. That's the world we're not to love. The world of sin. The world of sin. The sinful things of the world. That's why John goes on in verse 15 and he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. As Christians, we're called to love God's universe. As Christians, we're called to love God's people. We're called to love sinners and bring the gospel to them. But we are not to love the evil system of this world that is ruled by Satan or any of those things that are opposed to God. The system ruled by the devil must be rejected. John further defines the world for us in verse 17. He does that by contrasting love of the world with doing the will of God. To love the world is the opposite of doing the will of God. And to do the will of God is the opposite of loving the world. So loving the world is doing anything, loving anything, embracing anything that is contrary to God's will and God's purposes. This, of course, would include abortion, homosexuality, gender fluidity, fornication, adultery, <laughs> drugs, pornography, all the things that seem to run very rampant in our culture. Huh? In other words, hate what the world loves. The things of the world are to be rejected. John just said in verse 14, we have overcome the evil one. First John 5, remember he said we've overcome the world. Jesus said in John 15, 19, you're not of the world, you've been chosen out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. According to Ephesians 2, 2, we used to walk according to the counsel of the world, the cor- after the course of the world, but now, he tells the Romans, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be like the world because we've been saved out of the world. We've been rescued from the world, delivered from the world. We should have nothing to do with the world system for which Christ died to save us from. The system is to be rejected. To love the world means to set your affections on it. To be consumed with it. To be in love with it. To be devoted to it. And though John specifically has in mind the evil things of the world, this certainly applies even to the seemingly neutral things of the world. For instance, it's okay to have money and even to enjoy money. But if you love money more than God, you're an idolater and you're in sin. It's okay to love sports. It's okay to love art. It's okay to love video games. It's okay to love television. It's okay to love your family, to love entertainment, to love your hobbies. But if you love any of those things more than God, you make them your gods and you're an idolater. An idolater. You're in sin. In other words, good things make bad gods. Good things make bad gods. Or as Daniel Aiken says, turning good things into God things is a bad thing. Turning good things into God things is a bad thing. So even the good things of the world are not to be preferred over God. We're not to love them above God in Christ. Our ultimate devotion is to who? Our Lord. Our Lord. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus made a startling statement. He said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, if you love anything more than Jesus, you are not a follower of Jesus. You're not worthy to follow Jesus. You're not a true disciple. You're not in the kingdom. True believers have lost everything to follow after Him. We understand that we don't do this perfectly, right? This is a process of growth. This is an imperfect love. But true believers love Christ 
supremely. You know, often those who initially make a profession of faith, they eventually demonstrate that their faith and their profession is not genuine because they leave God for the world. They leave God for the world. How many of us know people like that? People that we love. People that seem to get off to a good start only to run back to the world like a dog returning to its vomit. Remember 2 Timothy 4, Paul said that Demas forsook him having loved the present world. Sad day for Paul. Dear friend of his, leaves him having loved the present world. We know Judas left the Savior, betrayed the Savior because he loved money more than he loved God. He loved money more than he loved God. May it never be that we would leave God for the world. May it never be that we would love the gift more than the giver. That's really the heart of idolatry, isn't it? It's like a father comes home and brings a new game system home to his children and they're so happy to have the system and they play it all day and then the father says, hey guys, can I play with you? And they go, no dad, get away. We just want the game. They love the gift more than the giver. If the father had any common sense, he'd sling the game out of the window and tell him, I'm your father. You should love me. I love you. That's what we do when we love the things that God has given us more than we love the God who gave them to us. It's idolatry. Paul said in Galatians 6.14 that through the cross of Christ, I've been crucified to the world. I've died to the world. He told the Galatians in chapter 1, Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. God has through Christ delivered us from this evil world. Why would we love the world for which Christ died to deliver us? Why would you love the world that hates your Savior? Right? That's what he said. The world hates you. Realize it first hated who? Me. The Lord. Why would we love that which hates our Savior? You know, one of the biggest problems in our culture today, no doubt about it, is that many professing Christians do not really love God. They love the world. They love the world. They love the things in the world. Their life looks just like everyone else. They just come to church on Sunday. They're lucky they even do that. And then they go back to the world and do everything the world does. They look just like it. I think our election this year proves that. people. Who you voted for is irrelevant to me. But if you say, hey, I voted for this candidate because he's all about pro-choice, or he's all about abortion, or he's all about homosexuality, friends, you are not a believer. You love the world. You love the world. And you need somebody to tell you the truth. The problem, in fact, if things continue to spiral out of control in our culture and our nation heads what it seems to be heading for judgment, in fact, it's already under judgment, but it goes there to the point of no return, many of these professing Christians are going to be gone. They're only Christians because that's what most people in our culture do. You're just a good old guy. You go to church on Sunday. You love God. But oh, you love abortion. You love pro-choice. You love all the things of the world. Friends, that's a problem. That's a problem. We should never love that which Christ died to save us from. In fact, if that's you today, my plea to you is that you would come to Christ. Truly and savingly on His terms, not your terms. His terms, not common modern evangelical day, evangelicals terms. His terms are absolute surrender. That you would run from your sin. That you would lay down your self-righteousness. That you would throw away your dreams and your aspirations. And you would run to Christ and submit to Him by faith and faith <laughs> alone. And Jesus says, unless you give up all that you have to follow after me, you can't be my disciple. That is the demand. He's the one that died to save us. He's the one that bore God's wrath for us. He's the one that delivers us from this evil age. And He is the one that demands our absolute devotion. We must be devoted to Him. Christ is to be more precious to us than all the things the world has to offer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I count all things as rubbish, garbage, trash, dung, compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Think of the greatest thing on this earth you enjoy. Maybe your greatest accomplishment. Your most prized possession. Your, your dearest loved one. And can you say that in comparison to my love for Jesus, it is dung. That's what we should be able to say. Our devotion to the Savior. Colossians 1.13 says, We have been delivered out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, delivered out of this wicked world, and therefore we should never love this world. 
Now all of that provides good reason, doesn't it? To not love the world. Sounds good. We can go home. We don't need to love the world. That's good enough. But John, in these verses, provides three specific reasons. Three reasons believers are not to love the world. And they're very, very strong words. The first reason is found in the second half of verse 15. Look back at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that mean? Very simple. If you love the world, you do not love God. That's it. Simple. Clear cut and dry. John, yet again, black and white, straightforward, no middle ground. If you love the world, you do not love God. The love of the Father is not in you. That is to say, you do not possess in your heart the love of God. Romans 5.5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you love the world, that's not true for you. You don't possess the love of God. You don't love God. You don't belong to God. You're against Him. So the first reason to love, not love the world is because if you love the world, you do not love God. Those who love the world demonstrate that they do not have the love in their hearts for the Savior. You've got to pick. You've got to pick. You know, the basic definition of a Christian is one who loves God. Very simple. That's simple, isn't it? A Christian is someone who loves God. Romans 8.28, we love that verse. It says that God is causing all things to work together for good. And then we just end it there usually. But it's not just for anybody. It's He's working everything out for good to those who love God. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. And 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love God, he is to be accursed, damned, anathema, devoted to destruction. So a Christian is someone who loves God. But if you love the world, you do not love God. You are not a believer, and therefore you are a curse, according to the Bible's own definition. Those who love the world are not Christians. They fail the test. They do not belong to the Savior. If you love abortion, very simple. You do not love God. Very simple. If abortion is what the Scripture says it is, the murder of those who have been formed in the womb of the mother, and if murder is the taking of a life of a creature of God, a human being made in the image of God, and if that's a thing of the world, and if you love the things of the world, you don't love God. If you love abortion, you do not love God. If you love homosexuality, if you love gender fluidity and those ideologies, the LGBTQ, if you love fornication and pornography and gossip and lust, if you love these things and approve of these things, you are not a believer. You do not love God. You know, the Greek text here in verse 16 begins with the word hati, translated here in the NAS as for, but it could probably be translated better because. Because. If you love the world, you don't love God. Verse 16, you're opposed to God. Because, verse 16 he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. This is why. Because if you love these things, they're not of God. They're not of God. You can't love God and the world. You see, like I said at the beginning, if I love children, I hate abortion, don't I? If I love marriage, I hate divorce. If I love my wife, I hate adultery. If I love truth, I hate error. If I love God, I cannot love the world. So that's the first reason that I love the world. But then John gives us a second reason. Look at verse 16 now. We've looked at it a little bit, but look again. Second reason to not love the world is because if you love the world, you're opposed to God. Not only do you not love God, but you're opposed to Him. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So as I said, it could be better because here. Why, if you love the world, do you not love God? Because all that's in the world is against God. There's no neutrality here. There is no middle ground. What does Jesus say? You're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. You either love God or you hate God. 
There is no one in the world who just kind of likes God but doesn't really love Him. No, you either all in, all out, love Him or hate Him, for Him or against Him. There's no middle ground. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You've got to pick. You've got to pick. And as I said earlier, in verse 16, John kind of defines the world for us. All that's in the world, everything evil in the world falls into these three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Everything essential to this evil system ruled by the devil is in that category. These are the the categories of sin, the avenues of temptation. First you have the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, what's that? The word epithemia. Epithemia, we've talked about the word before in our study of Colossians. It just means desire. Desire, strong desire, intense desire, passionate longing. It's not necessarily negative. It could be used positively. It's even used of Jesus in the Gospels. But here it's clearly negative. Here it refers to the things of the world that are to be rejected. It's the lust of the flesh. Flesh refers to the unredeemed sinful human body, the principle of sin operating within our unredeemed human bodies. If you want a sample list of the lust of the flesh, look no further than Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul says this, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you love those things, and you practice those things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, you are not a believer, you are not saved, and you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the lust of the flesh. Then you have the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. What's that? It's the sinful desires that are aroused in us by what we see. Sinful desires aroused in us by what we see. This, of course, would include sexual lust and covetousness. I see something and I want it. I have to have it. So much so that I'm willing to bust a window to go get it. I'm willing to take someone else's life to go get it. It's the lust of the eyes. We see it. We've got to have it. It's the sin, it's the temptation that led to David's fall, didn't it? Good old King David up on the roof, hanging out, enjoying life, and then all of a sudden Bathsheba's bathing, and he ends up committing adultery and murder, and we know that it was never the same for David. It's the lust of the eyes. Jesus says if you look at a woman in lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. In your heart. The Bible says we have eyes full of adultery. It's the lust of the eyes. Finally, you have one more avenue of temptation here. The boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. It's the desire to promote self, to glorify self, exalt self. Someone wrote, pronouns you, me and I seem innocent enough in writing, but in reality they speak a world about our heart, don't they? We always think about ourselves, talk about ourselves, exalt ourselves. We're self-consumed, self-centered. Even the things we love, listen to them. I love my family. Love my car. Love my football team. Love my home. My pet. My, my, my. There's a common denominator, isn't there? It's me. It's the pride of life. In a word, it is to worship oneself. Sin, that's what sin does. Sin is a, makes us a glory thief. We want to rob God of His glory. We would, If we could, in our natural state, we would rip God off His throne and place ourselves upon it. It's the boastful pride of life. And friends, anytime Satan tempts anyone, those are the three avenues of temptation he utilizes. Always. Always. And there are examples of this in Scripture. There are examples of this. The two men who have stood at the heads of, as the heads of all humanity were both tempted in this way. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We go all the way back to the beginning here. We find Adam and Eve in a perfect paradise garden. 
in perfect harmony and communion with God, everything's all, all is well. They're, they're in a state of innocence. They have no innate, inherent desire to sin in them like we do today. They're not bent toward evil. Everything's good. And they become evidence that your circumstances aren't the reason you sin, aren't they? Because Adam and Eve had perfect circumstances and they still sin. Look at Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Did God tell them they couldn't eat from any tree? There was a tree in the midst of the garden, right? Tree of good and evil. So right. So they could eat off a tree. In fact, they could eat off lots of trees. There was just one tree. So Satan, what's he doing here? He's twisting the word of God, making it sound harsher than it really was. He's up. That's, that's what he always does. He, even today, he's up to his old tactics, twisting scripture, twisting God's word. But notice the response of Eve, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, "From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat." But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die? Now Satan goes from twisting the word to outright denying the word. God is a liar. He goes from false religion to atheism. God is a liar. God's not telling you the truth. God's word is not trustworthy. Verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll essentially become a God. God's just trying to hold you back. God's the problem here, Adam and Eve. Verse 6, the woman saw, watch this, the woman saw that the tree was good. What's that? The lust of the eyes. lust of the eyes. The woman saw that the tree was good for Food. What's that? Lust of the flesh. This will satisfy my physical hunger, my bodily appetite. Lust of the flesh. So she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Back to the lust of the eyes. And then that the tree was desirable to make one wise. What's that? Boastful pride of life. I'll be like God. I'll be wise. I'm going to doubt what God has said. I'm going to disobey what God has said because I can become like God. It's about me. And having tempted them with these three avenues of temptation, we know the story, right? She took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open. We know the rest. Humanity is plunged into sin and death because Satan utilizes his old trick, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We saw the first man, the first Adam, and he and his wife fall together. Then we come to Matthew 4, we see the second man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. And he's also tempted. The difference is, he's not in a perfect paradise garden like Adam. He's in a fallen, sinful, barren, hot desert, hungry. And he's tempted as well. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted forty days and forty nights, He then became hungry. I fast eight hours every night and I get hungry in the morning, so Jesus has got to be pretty hungry. And the tempter came and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What's that? What temptation is that? Lust of the flesh. Jesus, you're hungry. You're the Son of God. Forget that you've humbled yourself in the Incarnation, that you're dependent upon the Father's will and the Spirit's power. Go the easy way. Just turn these stones into bread. What are you doing? Eat. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture, and unlike Adam, he overcomes the temptation. But Satan doesn't stop there, does he? Satan doesn't give up very easily. Verse 5, The devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. <coughs> What's that? What temptation is that? 
the boastful pride of life. Jesus, just presumptuously jump off the temple. Just test God. He'll come to your aid. Just jump off the temple and put God to the test. Of course, Jesus again quotes the Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then verse 8. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him. Showed him the, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What's that? Lust of the eyes. Look, Jesus, I'll give it all to you. God's plan's too hard. His plan is that you go for 33 years, live in perfection, die on the cross, bear the wrath of God, then you're exalted and you get it all back. I'll give it to you now. Just fall down and worship me. Look at it. It's all right there. But we know that Jesus then quotes Scripture yet again and overcomes where Adam failed. He succeeded where Adam failed. He brings us where Adam failed to bring us. He obeyed where Adam sinned. But the point is, just as in the case of Adam, so it was in the case of our Lord, and so it is in the case of us, anytime the devil comes with temptation, it's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. In fact, often, it's all three of them, isn't it? As it was in their case. Back to 1 John 2 now. 1 John 2. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. All of that encompasses the things of the world that must be rejected by the Christian. That would include gluttony, sexual immorality, sexual lust, pride, selfishness, <coughs> etc. All of these things are of the world, are of the devil, and must be rejected and hated by children of God. But why? Why do we reject this? Why? Because, the end of verse 16, all of this is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things do not come from God. They do not come from Him. He doesn't tempt us to sin. He doesn't entice us to sin. His eyes are too pure to approve of evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with favor. These things don't come from God. They come from the world. They come from the devil. They come from His demonic host. That's where these things come from. And they are contrary to God. They are opposed to God. They are against God. And if you love the things that are opposed to God, then you're opposed to God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James gives us this pointed warning. You adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You love the world. You are God's enemy. Perhaps the world loves us so much often because we're just like them. Perhaps the world loves us because we belong to it. But if we're true believers, we do not love the world. We do not love that which opposes God. We're not opposed to God. We're on the opposite end. So you must make a choice then. It's either God or the world. It's either, it's either Satan or Christ. It's either sin or salvation. You can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too, right? That's what they say. You can, you can eat a better cake in heaven, right? But the bottom line is you cannot have the world and have God. You cannot straddle the fence. You're either for Him or against Him. So the question is, which one do you choose? Which one do we choose? Do we love the world? Do we look just like the world, talk like the world, think like the world, act like the world, esteem and value what the world values? Is that what we look like? Is your life marked by worldliness or godliness? That's the question. That, my friends, is the test of love. The test of love. It's either God or the world. True believers love God. False believers love the world. Which are you? Which are you? So the second reason to not love the world is because if you love the world, you are opposed to God. But one more. One more. Number three. Because if you love the world, you are under the wrath of God. If you love the world, you're under the wrath of God. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lust. What does that mean? It means that this evil, wicked system ruled by Satan will soon be destroyed. It will soon be eradicated. At the cross, Jesus delivered a fatal blow to the head of the serpent. He's bleeding to death. He's soon to run out. The world will soon, in this sense, come to an end. The system will be destroyed, along with all of its sinful lust and its sinful passions. You may love sin now, but friends, realize sin is temporary. To drink iniquity like water is to drink a cup of poison, thinking it will bring satisfaction, and it only brings death. Sin is temporary. 
So this world's passing away. Why? Because Satan, the ruler of this world, who's already been cast out, will one day be consigned to eternal hell. He'll be damned into the lake of fire. And all of his children will also be cast into hell. And of course, all of God's people will be glorified and perfected and inherit a renewed Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, a perfect garden where only righteousness dwells. And then that wicked system, which is so common today, will come to an end. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says that those who use the world must become as those that do not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Passing away. Remember back in verse 8, John said, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The glory of God is already manifested in His people. Sin is being eradicated little by little and before you know it, Christ is going to come and destroy His enemies and eradicate all sin. Revelation 20.10 says that Satan will be cast alive into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 15 says that all those whose names are not found in the book of life will also be cast into that same lake of fire. Tormented day and night forever and ever. In fact, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We've been to the beginning, now let's go to the end. Revelation 21. Here we see the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation that we are awaiting. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There it is, it's passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This is the church coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, the bride of Christ, the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. Saints, do you cry today? Do you ache today? Do you weep today? That is temporary. The Lord will take it all away. No longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This evil system will pass away. All of it. Believers will be then renewed, brought into a kingdom without sin, without sickness, without pain, without death. Amazing. Amazing. But notice in verse 8, Revelation 21, verse 8, this sad and sharp, stark contrast. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, that is all of those who love the world and love the things of the world, the things that are passing away, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who love the world, eternal hell will be their forever home. Their eternal abode. Back to 1 John 2 now. So this world is passing away. Passing away. The system of things is passing away. And also it's lust. And then you could add all those who love it. All those who love the world will pass away with it. All those who love the world will perish with the world and they'll weep as all that they've loved has gone down into judgment. Gone into judgment. But there's a contrast here in verse 17 as well. Look at verse 17. But, for those of you who don't know grammar, that's a contrast word, right? But the one who does the will of God lives forever. What is the will of God? The will of God is that you be saved, that you repent, that you believe in Christ, that you love God, that you love your neighbor, that you obey His commandments, that you pursue holiness, that you reject the world. Those who do that, those who do the will of God, live forever. They have eternal life. So to do God's will is the opposite of loving the world. It's to reject the world. It's to reject the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And those who do that give evidence that they are genuine believers, true Christians. But those who do not, they fail the test. 
and they're going to perish. What a stark contrast. Remember Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Then He says, But the one who will enter is the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. That's the true believer. He does the will of God. Perfectly? No. Habitually? Consistently? Increasingly? Yes. That's the new mark of the Christian's life. Obedience to the will of God. But those who love the world, those who love sin, those who love lawlessness, they will perish with the world. But those who are in Christ will never die. Jesus says, you believe in Me, you'll live even if you die. You'll never die. You'll live and reign forever because in Christ we have eternal life. That's the good news. So as believers, we're required not to love the world. Why? Because if you love the world, you do not love God. If you love the world, you're opposed to God. And if you love the world, you're under the wrath of God. You're under the wrath of God. The flip side is true. If you do not love the world, you do love God. If you do not love the world, you're a friend of God. And if you do not love the world, you have the life of God. Eternal life dwelling in you. So what category, brothers and sisters, do you fall into? Do you love God or the world? What consumes your mind? What dominates your thoughts? What makes you wake up in the morning? What do you live for? What is your true longing? What is your heart truly devoted to? Is it God or is it the world? If you come to the conclusion this morning that you love the world, and again, you failed the test, and you need to run to Christ, and again, I would be glad to talk with you after the service. But if you pass the test, you see that God is at work, you now reject the things of the world, you still fall into them, and you hate them, and you confess them, and you fight them, and you love God, then take heart, brothers and sisters, because you can have confidence that indeed you know Him, and you will live forever. Next week, we'll run into the false teachers. In verses 18-23, to the very ones who are the epitome of those who love the world and oppose God, in fact, John calls them Antichrist to kind of give you a preview of where we're going next week. We get to talk about Antichrist. I don't know where your mind went when I said that, but we'll find out next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, let us commit to not loving the world, but loving God for His glory and our assurance. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that You have loved us with an everlasting love and have given us the gift of the Savior. We're thankful that You've broken our love for the world. Lord, we used to love the world, belong to the world, enslaved to the world. You freed us by Your grace. Christ gave Himself to deliver us from this age. Why would we love it? Why would we love the world that Jesus died to save us from? Why would we love the world that hates our God? Why would we love the world that is opposed to God? Give us grace as Your church to be faithful, to reject this evil system, to proclaim the truth in love to this evil system, and to love You and be faithful to You. And we hope and we pray that You would save more and more in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families. You would save more and more people out of this world system and bring them into the everlasting kingdom of God. So thank You for hearing our prayers. Thank You for speaking to us through Your Word. And now as we sing and take the Lord's Supper, we do it for Your glory. Amen.